to Psalm 105. Psalm 105. This was going to be our scripture reading this morning, and uh, you'll find that it uh, has bearing on where we'll be going for the rest of our time together. Psalm 105. We're going to read just the first 15 verses of Psalm 105. The psalmist, David, writes, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, Do my prophets no harm. We'll stop there. Today, nowadays, you might say, we have the ability to get to know important people unlike any other time in history. A lot of times it's through social media. Um, This is uh, the the X. Remember, do you know what X is? Formerly Twitter. Um, Facebook, Instagram, We can follow the personal lives of government leaders, musicians, professional athletes. To a great degree, we find out so much about what a person is really like, at least to the degree that they want to let you in. You're thinking when you're following them, wow, I have some of the same tastes. Oh, that person's fun too. Oh, they're kind of funny in their own personal way. Um, Look at that nice house. Look at that nice car. But more often than not, if we're honest, it can be disappointing to know so much about the personal lives of these celebrities in whatever fashion they might be. I'll find that they agree with me in all my positions, hopefully, but then I find out, oh, they're really weird on this one thing. Oh, they, they said they were a faith-based person, whatever that means, and then they actually talk like this, though. Um, oh, they're really self-centered. Oh, that's really interesting that they did this, but, whoa, what in the world's going on there? And that's really true uh, oftentimes for people that say they're faith-based people. You get to know them, and then you're sometimes jaded by what you discover about them. It's actually a letdown when you see more of their life. You're thinking, well, you said you're a Christian, but you're kind of okay with all this stuff that God says is not good. And it's kind of a letdown sometimes, the better you get to know someone. 
some celebrity gets saved and you're, wow, oh, let's, you know, they have him, you know, a mega church has him to speak at their men's breakfast. And turns out he's just kind of a shallow Christian. And sometimes you're left wondering, is he really a Christian at all? Sometimes people use the testimonies of supposed Christians as an excuse to not even believe Christianity at all. You, you say you're a Christian and you behave like this? I'm not going to have anything to do with Christianity based on that. But it, is perfection a realistic standard, though, for sinful human beings? Without exception, the better you get to know someone, the more imperfections you're going to find. And this, in fact, when it comes to the truthfulness of the Bible, is an argument for its truthfulness. You don't really find what's called uh, hagiography, basically where you have the selective portrayal of someone as, as, as having no faults. And, you know, when you look back on this person in history, they could do no wrong. They were so amazing in every way. The Bible isn't a hagiography of people. It actually, and if anything, it's kind of the opposite. If you were creating some sort of man-made religion, you wouldn't choose to include all the ugliness of its followers. But that's exactly what the Bible does. The more you get to know the great figures of the Bible, the more flaws you find. Such raw honesty points to truthfulness, not fairy tale. Such raw honesty about imperfect people also leaves us yearning for perfection. We start to get to know someone. Oh, maybe they will be the perfect person, the perfect leader that we need. And then... As often in the Old Testament, we find, oh no, turns out they're not perfect. They had flaws. They had sinful struggles. They had big falls. Why can't there be a leader that we could use as a role model? Role model. Why can't there be a leader we can trust? Why can't there be a leader whose power and influence doesn't just corrupt him? The stories of the Old Testament scream really loud. Will there ever be a leader that we can trust who will lead us perfectly. That's what all of the Old Testament is showing through its pages. This morning, Lord willing, and next Sunday morning, we're going to look at a particular Old Testament couple of books, for one book for each Sunday of First and Second Chronicles. I want you to turn there with me. First Chronicles. You can actually turn um, to the end of Second Chronicles. Sports figures disappoint us, the, the better we get to know them. Celebrities, which are basically people that are famous for being famous, disappoint us, the better we get to know them. Government leaders, leaders that we maybe even know personally, will disappoint us. And here in the book of First Chronicles, through the lens of imperfect people, we're going to see in stark contrast the character of God displayed very clearly. In stark contrast to human people, the human, flawed, frail people, God is faithful and God is central. Those are the two themes together that make up this long book of First Chronicles. Let's pray. Uh, we need his help to, again, to focus and, and see this rightly, and uh, we'll see what God has to show us through his spirit. Let's pray. Father, you have, by your spirit, breathed out the pages of these events that really happened. 
And so we, we need your help to, to see you in these pages and even to see us in these pages. Uh, we ask for your help uh, to respond rightly to who you are as you've revealed yourself to be in your word. And uh, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. As we orient ourselves to the book of First Chronicles, first we need to know a couple of things. Uh, who's, who's talking and who's it to? The author and the audience. The author of uh, First and Second Chronicles, we don't know for sure. So that really helps you a lot, doesn't it? It, it might have been Ezra. The chronicler, we could call him, probably Ezra, based on uh, similarity of the, the time period in which it was written, uh, some of the focuses um, that he has in the book. Um, it's probably Ezra, we'll call him the chronicler, is writing for the people of Israel. That's the primary audience. The context of its writing, kind of when was it written, uh, what were the people going through when they were uh, reading this, in 605 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire began his conquest of the Israelites. So 600 years before Christ comes, and that culminates into the destruction of the temple in 586. The temple is destroyed, and so uh, you should be thinking King Nebuchadnezzar, that's Daniel, the Babylonian exile of the people. And eventually, the temple is destroyed, Daniel and some of his um, fellow Israelites are brought to Babylon to serve there. Eventually, there's no more Israel, so to speak. They're completely displaced from their land. Fifty years later, there's no more Babylon. Babylon is conquered by the Persian Empire. In 538, another empire has risen, and uh, if you're at the end of Second Chronicles, or you could just turn to Ezra and back up a little bit, you see the way our uh, Bible, as it's laid out, goes right from Second Chronicles, chapter 36, into the book of Ezra. The last couple of verses of Second Chronicles, we're seeing this risen king Cyrus that God, uh, in his providence, you know how he can turn the heart of a king like a river and it just goes wherever God wants it to? Like Proverbs says, he does that with Cyrus. King Cyrus gives the Israelites the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to build the temple and the walls. This is the, during the time frame in which Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi were all serving. And so probably by the time First and Second Chronicles is written, the temple has been rebuilt because of God's providential using of King Cyrus to give them that opportunity. The temple is rebuilt in 516. And then as you rebuild the books of, as you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, the walls are being rebuilt of Jerusalem. And so that's the other thing that's going on. But if you remember, as you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, that wasn't just, oh, this is a great time of celebration. Let's just take our time and rebuild the walls. No, there was threat. Remember, they were the, the tool in one hand and the weapon, weapon for defense in the other hand. That's what's going on, probably as the Israelites are reading First and Second Chronicles. They're going back into a period of opposition. It's almost as if they were in the exile once again, even though this is post-exile, post-exilic. These people need encouragement to continue to be faithful to God. So the chronicler, probably Ezra, recounts a lot of what you see in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But 
what he chooses to include in First and Second Chronicles helps us see the focus that he wants for his reader to take away. The message for the people of Israel, and specifically the smaller remaining remnant, oh, we just jumped forward really fast. I don't know what that was all about. Um, it's the one that says message. It's just acting funny, I guess. The message, I'll tell you, is this. Because, remember that what the theme is? God is faithful. God is central. Because God is faithful and God is to be central, so you must be faithful by keeping God central. That's what the message of First Chronicles is. And in terms of a, an overview of the book, it looks like this. It's kind of simple. It's actually both books put together. Um, first Chronicles, the first nine chapters, if you didn't get bogged down in your Bible reading through the year in like Numbers and Leviticus, you might get bogged down in the first nine chapters of First Chronicles genealogy after genealogy, starting from Adam all the way down to David. And in fact, many skeptics of the Bible are happy to use these chapters to mock the Bible. <laughs> the Bible. And they just, you know, quote some stuff from First Chronicles 1 through 9 because it seems kind of silly. Why are we including all this detail? But in those first nine chapters, it zooms out to all of history. Adam, then it focuses on Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and then it focuses not on Joseph, like in Genesis. Wow, maybe the promise will come through Joseph, because how awesome was he? But no, uh, Judah is chosen. And so the, the history, the genealogy, focuses on Judah. And it's hinting toward a one-day greatest descendant of all. History itself was heading to this one-day greatest descendant, and still is heading to him. We see then the specifics of much of the reign of King David. The rest of First Chronicles is all about David. The baton passes to David's son, Solomon, when you turn the page into Second Chronicles. First nine chapters of Second Chronicles is all about Solomon and his reign. And then the rest of Second Chronicles is everybody else, all the other kings. And it becomes more and more of a letdown. There's some, there's some good high points, but even those high points have ugliness around them in those other kings. But the center point, as David passes the baton to Solomon, you'll find that the heart of these two books is the greatest achievement that David wanted to accomplish that he wasn't allowed to, but that he passed the, son, the baton to his son Solomon. What's the greatest achievement that David wanted to accomplish? It was the building of the temple. So the heart of this book, you'll find on purpose by the chronicler, is the events surrounding the preparation and the building and the celebration of the temple. The first point, as we see through uh, this book, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. Number one, to control all things. Turn back to 1 Chronicles 9 and the very first verse. There are reasons for God's control of all things, in particular with the people of Israel. First Chronicles chapter 9 and verse 1. So, to summarize the first nine chapters, if you will. So, all Israel was recorded in genealogies, and these are written in the book of the kings of Israel. And Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. 
those are God's fingerprints. They broke faith with him, and so he orchestrated their deliverance into, ba- in, into the hands of Babylon. Verse uh, 13, turn the page to chapter 10. Chapter 10 and verse 13. God was yet faithful to control even the bad things. So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. Verse 14 of chapter 10. He did not seek guidance from the Lord, from Yahweh. Therefore the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Verse 9 of the next chapter. Chapter 11, verse 9. And David became greater and greater. Why? For the Lord of hosts was with him. That's why David became great. Look at chapter 12 and verse 18. Then the spirit clothed Amasai, chief of the 30. These are David's mighty men. And he said, we are yours, O David, and with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you and peace to your helpers. For God, for your God helps you. Look at chapter 14, chapter 14 and verse 10. And David inquired of God, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord, answer, the Lord said to him, go up and I will give them into your hand. Look down in verse 14. And David inquired, and when David again inquired of God, God said to him, you shall not go up after them. Look at verse 15. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees and go out to battle, then go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. Look at the end of verse 17. And the Lord brought the fear of him upon all nations. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17 and verse 7. Chapter 17 and verse 7. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Who is the key to David's success? It's, it's God himself. If good things were happening in David's life, if, if the nations were afraid of Israel, it was because God was directing all of that. Verse 6 of chapter 18. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went wherever he went. Verse 13, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Verse 13 of chapter 19, may the Lord do what seems good to him. The chronicler is drawing attention to the fact that David's success, Israel's fate was due to God's direction. God is in control of all. God is faithful to control all things. And then secondly, God is faithful to keep his promises. You're nearby. Uh, l- l- let's look at chapter 17. Chapter 17. I would say the most prominent place you see God's faithfulness in keeping a promise and drawing attention to that is here in chapter 17 in this Davidic covenant, the covenant that God made with David. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7 of chapter 17. Uh, God is talking to Nathan, the prophet here. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. 
Who's, who's been directing all these steps? Who, who's directing all of history? Verse 9, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, when your time has come on this earth, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who is before you, but I will confirm in him my house and, my king, and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. If you keep on reading into Second Chronicles and you discover the life of Solomon, you'll find out that it wasn't Solomon whose throne ended up being established forever. Solomon let the promise down, if you will. The promises that are made here to David go way beyond Solomon. And yet we see God's faithfulness to his people even in these promises, in the coming Christ. Another thing that we see God's faithfulness in, in First and Second Chronicles, is that there are consequences to sinful actions. It reminds us a lot of Hebrews 12. The Lord does what to those that he loves? The Lord chastens those whom he loves. And we saw that even just in some of the passages we just looked at. When, when Israel broke faith with God, there was a consequence that God gave to the people of Israel so that they would come back to him. God was in charge of that. There are consequences to sinful actions, but also something that we see is that God responds to those that are repentant. When the judgment, when the exile came and God's people repented, God didn't stiff arm them yet again. He responded graciously to repentance and he forgave sin. God is the one who directs all of our steps. God's the one that's faithful to control all things, to keep his promises. Shasta. Shasta is the boy in C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy. And as you get near the end of the book, Shasta has had quite a time of it, and he's feeling really sorry for himself. He's traveling by himself at night. C.S. Lewis writes in the words of Shasta, I do think, Shasta says, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. And as he's riding along at night by himself on this horse, he's, he's startled because he realizes alongside him there's this creature of some sort, this large creature that's been alongside him for who knows how long. He's very startled. And, and it might have been walking alongside him for a long time. He's, he starts talking with the creature. Who, who, who are you? He realizes, I can't outrun this thing. I will, I will talk to him. Who are you? He talks with the creature who seems great and terrible and, and, and kind at the same time. And he begins to share his woes 
if you only knew what my life has been like, there was these lions that were chasing me. And then another time this lion chased me and this other lion scratched the back of my friend. My life has been horrible. The creature, who is in fact a great lion, if you're familiar with the stories, Aslan, as it would turn out to be, the one who Lewis pictures as Christ, the great lion reveals that all these unfortunate happenings had been his own guidance. The lion says, I I think it's, he says, I do not consider you unfortunate, he tells Shasta. At every twist and turn, the lion goes back and recounts to Shasta, what you thought was bad there, that was me. When you were first born and, and you were born into this rough situation, that was me gently guiding you exactly the way I wanted you to. The lion has been there directing Shasta's steps and the very course of his life. And really, that's the primary point of the horse and his boy. Each of the chronicles of Narnia have a, a, a thing that Lewis is trying to say biblically. God's providential direction of every step of our lives is the point of the horse and his boy. He beautifully paints that picture of God's faithful guidance along the path of life. These Israelites, they needed to be reminded They were in a tough situation, as it were. They were getting opposition to what they thought was a good thing, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. They needed a reminding that that God had been directing their steps all along the way. God had been faithful. God was always in control. And that was true right then and there. That's true for us. Whether or not we're aware of it, God is directing our steps. Whether or not we're loving it, God was always perfectly directing our steps. Whether or not we are aware of it right now, whether or not we are loving it right now, God is right now continuing to perfectly direct our steps. God is faithful to control all things. He is faithful to keep his promises. Secondly, God is central. God is central. God is central first to his people. And in the book of 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, there's two primary things, if you will, that God uses to remind his own people of the centrality of himself to them. The first thing is small, but it's made of gold and it contains the tablets of the law. It's the Ark of the Covenant. I want you to turn to chapter 13. Chapter 13. God is central. Chapter 13. Chapter 13. Look at verse look at verse 5. So David assembled all Israel from the Nile of Egypt to Lebo Hamath to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. And David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is, to bring to, to Kiriath-Jerim that belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord, who sits enthroned above the cherubim, which is actually pictured in how the ark of God is made. Verse 7, And they carry the ark of God on a new cart from the house of Abinadab, and Uzzah and Ohio were driving the cart. And David and all Israel were rejoicing before God with all their might, 
with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kaidon, Uzzah put out his hand to take hold of the ark, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And, and David wasn't happy about this. We'll not continue reading for now. But what was great rejoicing, because the presence of God as pictured, as, as, as really true about the Ark of the Covenant being celebrated, it's joyful, but God takes very seriously how you take his presence. Now, what happens they, verse 13, David did not take the ark home into the city of David, but took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Oh, okay, this, okay, we're, we're not doing this anymore. We apparently broke God's law and how we were handling the ark of the covenant. We won't go back into that, but it has long poles so that nobody would touch it when it was carried. They were doing it the way that he had said not to do it. But verse 14, the ark of God remained with the household of Obed-Edom in his house three months. And the Lord blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that he had. God takes very seriously and would even strike dead someone who wasn't worshiping in the way he said to with this ark of the covenant. A whole household is blessed in, in, in interesting ways because the ark of the covenant is there. Chapter 15 Verse 15 and 16, you can turn over there. Verse 15 and 16 of chapter 15. The Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles. Okay, we're doing it the right way this time. As Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who should play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. God's presence is central to his people. It had been in the tabernacle. Now it's getting transported. And then the other thing that God shows the, the importance of his centrality to his people, we see in chapter 22. Chapter 22. Then David said, this is first verse of the chapter. Then David said, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering for Israel. Now, what I didn't include was the entire context of all of this. If you back up a chapter, this is one of David's sins that gets a whole chapter devoted to it. And if you were to look at the parallel passage back in 2 Samuel chapter 24... They're almost identical in the details that are included. David wants to number the people. Joab says, no, you shouldn't do this. Joab doesn't even include the Levites because he knows how serious this is. He knows David is doing what God has said he should not do. And yet David numbers the people and, and he works through that. And, and this is the passage uh, beginning in verse 18 where if you've heard it, the, the phrase where how, how can I give something to God that I didn't actually sacrifice for? That's in the context of David's repentance of his sin of numbering the people. Almost all the details are the same as in chapter 24, but the chronicler includes verse 1 of chapter 22, where David has just sacrificed and, and tried to actually personally sacrifice, not just accepting the threshing floor from Ornan the Jebusite. There's this little detail. This is where 
the temple is going to be built. And so then, then the chronicler starts orienting our attention to where David's attention now goes, and that's the preparation for the building of the temple. And the rest of the book is a bunch of details about the temple. The temple forms really the center of First and Second Chronicles, and it's going to end up being a key measure of faithfulness to God for kings to come. How seriously did they take the temple worship? as seriously as God has prescribed? Did a king have a genuine heart for God that showed itself in how seriously they took the temple and its worship? The other thing that shows us the centrality of God is this aspect. Look back to chapter 16. Chapter 16. God is central to his people as evidenced by the importance of temple worship, by the importance of how they took the Ark of the Covenant, but God is central to himself. David's song of thanks is the heading here in our ESV in verse 8. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. The first 15 verses of this song of thanks that's recorded here is Psalm 105. So, and then if you keep on going in chapter 16, the next 13 verses are actually pulled from Psalm 96. We're not going to take the time to read through here, but you notice the things that are told about God. David is drawing attention to the fact that God doesn't need anything. He is great in and of himself. He deserves the glory because it would be wrong for him not to deserve and demand all the glory for himself. He wouldn't be God if he wasn't drawing the attention and the glory all to himself. Psalm 96 begins really in verse 23 of chapter 16. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of his salvation from day to day. So if I'm an Israelite rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and I'm reading this account, I'm reminded of something that I'm already really familiar with. Oh, that's... That's what we sing. That's our songbook. This is Psalm 105, or however they, however they would have referred to it. That, this is the song that I already know. And they're reminded of the context out of which it came. This is what David was worshiping the Lord with when they were focusing on the Ark of the Covenant. They were familiar with this already. And when they're reading the context of it, they're reminded, God is faithful. God is to be central And a lot of times that's what happens for us when we go through a a special and acute time of difficulty. We're singing a hymn and all of a sudden truth just grabs our attention. It's been there all along, but it grabs our attention in a unique way because we're going through the difficulty. Oh, I already knew this, but this is what I need. This is so true about God, and this is what I need to be focusing on. That's the impact that it would have had on the Israelites that were reading it. Its meaning and its significance came into sharp focus. If we were to look at chapter 17, the Davidic covenant, that focuses a lot on the centrality of God in and of himself. Chapter 29, verse 10 through 13, another praise Uh, another worship time of David's. We won't take the time to look through there. Chapter 29, 10 to 13, again reminds us of the centrality of God to himself. Riches and honor and all things are coming from him. 
They're his anyway. The centrality of God to himself. Lastly, God is to be central to you. We see this in, a, in, in really in a repeated contrast throughout the book. A, a contrast in how the people were relating to God. Were they faithful to him and pursuing him wholeheartedly? Or were they breaking faith with him? Or were they forsaking him? We're not going to look through all of the passages, but if, you, if you're looking for breach of faith, you see the consequences of that. But then you also see, on the other hand, the seeking of God. The seeking of God. Look at chapter 28. Chapter 28. Chapter 28 of First Chronicles. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look into Second Chronicles and we'll see more of this theme of seeking God or not seeking God or, or forsaking Him. Look at verse 9 right now, though, of First Chronicles 28. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. As the rest of First Chronicles has already reminded the reader of, you must seek God wholeheartedly. There will be consequences if you instead forsake him and break faith with him. The chronicler reminds us often, though, how do you, how do you go from forsaking to seeking. If, if you right now are in more of the, the, the posture of pushing away from God, are you stuck? Can you get out of that forsaking of God? Is it possible to go from forsaking to seeking? It is. Next week, we're going to look at this aspect in Second Chronicles. Humility. Humility is the key to go from pushing against God and to seeking. And if you seek God, as David reminded his son Solomon, who was to become king, he will be found by you. Humility. First Chronicles ends, just a, uh, the, the rest of this actual chapter, it ends with the death of David. De- David was a great man. He was a man with flaws. He's even a man that some Sometimes people use and point against the truthfulness of the Bible. How can you say he was? He did have flaws, and the Bible doesn't hide from them. Serious sins. But he also had a heart for God that kept on doing something. That Saul, on the other hand, never did. David kept on repenting of his sin. That's what true believers do. Yes, they sin. Of course they sin but they keep on running back to God and they keep on repenting of sin. David died not having seen the fulfillment of this eternal throne that would be established in Israel forever. The the baton of the temple that he passed on to Solomon. Solomon goes on to show us, okay, it's certainly not him that's going to be reigning and ruling perfectly and eternally. God's promise wasn't fulfilled in Solomon, and it wasn't fulfilled in many of the kings who would come after him that we see in Second Chronicles. 
Your hopes and dreams and plans could never be fulfilled in a mere man. The Israelites, surely they kept on wondering, maybe this next king will finally be the king that we can trust in and that won't have all these problems. And they kept on coming up short, didn't they? Are you trying to root your joys in another sinful human being? Are you giving excuses to your Christian life based on another flawed human being? Is the reason for your not believing Christianity based on another imperfect sinner? You'll keep on coming up short if you're looking to man as to, to, to be your hopes and dreams and maybe your reason for believing Christianity. But the promise to David, the, the call to you for right relationship to God can only be fulfilled in the promised coming Messiah, only in the promised Christ. God is faithful to control all things, to keep his promise. God is central to his people, to himself, and to you. Because God is faithful, and because God is central, you must be faithful by keeping him faithful.